Welcome to Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast that looks at how film and television use history to talk about today. My name is Leah Parody. And my name is Brian Krim. We're historians who watch way too much film and TV. And ever since graduate school, whenever we see stuff that is set in the past, we can't help but notice that whatever is going on when the film was made shows up on the screen too. Every one of us tries to make sense of our world by telling versions of history that seem to put the puzzle pieces together or offer the most comfort. Our own lies agreed upon. We know there are a lot of people who love TV and movies and history, just like us. And we've created this podcast with those people in mind. Sometimes the connections between history and the here and now can be fairly obvious, but a lot of it goes unnoticed or misunderstood. And this is where we come in. We hope to entertain and inform while we also amuse ourselves. The lies agreed upon in this episode are tied to both the style of the films we've chosen and the relationship to long-standing stories. Whether beloved national myths, as in the case with The Alamo from 2004, or the abolitionist narrative few moviegoers had heard of, from which 12 Years a Slave was adapted in 2013. Or, less familiar to American audiences, but very familiar to British and Irish ones, the immediately repudiated bundle of lies that was the official findings of the Widgery Report on the tragic massacre of civilians by British forces that ignited the worst years of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Bloody Sunday, released in 2002, effectively reveals the true horrors of that day in January 1972. Our lies agreed upon are, first, that a familiar, timeless story that reinforces who we think we are must be true. And second, that history is there to reassure and uplift, not to challenge or make us uncomfortable. And third, that there is only one history a stable truth that sits outside of time, prejudice, and self-interest. The first film we're going to be talking about in this episode is Bloody Sunday. Released in 2002, it was filmed in a cold Dublin winter just months after 9-11. Written and directed by Paul Greengrass, starring James Nesbitt, and with Tim Piggott-Smith and Nicholas Farrell, it's probably a movie most of our listeners have never heard of. It didn't even gross $1 million when it was released in the States, but it won the audience prize at Sundance and first prize at the Berlin Film Festival. Greengrass came from a documentary film background, and Bloody Sunday, only his second feature film, is shot in that style. It drops us into Derry, a Northern Irish city on the boundary between Northern Ireland and Ireland, in January 1972. The notorious events of that day, immortalized in a U2 song, arguably ignited what have come to be known as the Troubles. Community leaders, like the local Protestant member of Parliament, Ivan Cooper, played by Nesbitt, and Catholic MP and activist Bernadette Devlin, played by Mary Moulds, organized a civil rights march. They had been demanding reform and equal treatment for Catholics in Protestant-majority, British-occupied Northern Ireland. An overtly discriminatory political system, a lack of economic opportunity, harassment by police and military, and false imprisonment were leading the poor Catholics of Derry, called Londonderry by the British, 
and the rest of Northern Ireland to respond increasingly with violence. This march, attended by roughly 15,000 men, women, and children, was a demand for justice. The first half of the movie is spent mainly with Cooper as he encourages everyone to come to the march, insistent that it will be peaceful, and trying to ensure that outcome by speaking directly to the local IRA leadership, who are dubious that any civil rights appeal will work or that the British soldiers will respect the march. But they agree it would look bad for the IRA if they instigated anything given the makeup of the crowd. James Nesbitt is brilliant as Cooper. He's strung as tight as a violin string. You see in his face his hope and fear. His patience with people as he cajoles and scolds jokes and lectures is excruciating to watch. He is desperately trying to will the day to to turn out the way he wants. The second half of the film is a moment-by-moment immersion into what actually happened, a bloodbath. British soldiers, primed by their leaders to think of every Catholic as a hooligan at best and a terrorist at worst, started shooting indiscriminately into the crowd. 26 people were shot, some while fleeing, some while trying to help the wounded. 14 died. At the end of the film, Cooper speaks at a press conference about the ramifications of what happened that day. Let's listen to that now. Uh, This afternoon, 27 people were shot in this city. Thirteen of them lie dead tonight. They were innocent. We were there. And uh, I just want to say this to the British government. You know what you've just done, don't you? You've destroyed the civil rights movement. And you've given the IRA the biggest victory it will ever have. All over this city tonight, young men, boys, will be joining the IRA. And you will reap a whirlwind. Thank you. Very powerful stuff. And it's important to uh, tell our um, our listeners that there isn't then a, uh, a shot of uh, young men lined up in the sort of dim hallway of uh, a very grim looking uh, tenement building waiting to sign on with their local IRA chapter. Yeah, and I think you're right that how you describe Cooper, that beyond the obvious tragedy of Bloody Sunday, his just personal tragedy of, of trying, as you say, will himself to, be, to believe this day will work out. And that, and at the end of it, he has to give that press conference is, tells you everything. So our second movie was released in 2004 and like Bloody Sunday was explicitly tied to the events of 9-11 and the West's response to it. While Bloody Sunday was released in the early days of the assault against the Taliban in Afghanistan, The Alamo was released a year into the war in Iraq. It was directed by John Lee Hancock and produced by Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, and Mark Johnson. Hancock has some pretty good credits to his name, although none of them are really uh, historically themed movies, uh, both as a director and writer, uh, including The Rookie, The Blind Side, and A Perfect World. He also wrote the script for The Alamo with Leslie Boehm. 
And the cast is also not too shabby considering what appears on screen. Dennis Quaid is Sam Houston. Billy Bob Thornton plays Davy Crockett. And Jason Patrick is Jim Bowie. Patrick Wilson plays the commanding officer in charge of defending the Alamo, William Barrett Travis. And the great Mexican actor, Emilio Echevarria, plays General Santa Ana with all the subtlety of snidely whiplash. So there is talent behind the Alamo, uh, but it is a beautiful disaster. The plot revolves around the legendary, underline legendary, Siege of the Alamo in March of 1836, although there are some flashbacks to the events that lead this band of misfits to their fated end, and a postscript depicting Santa Ana's catastrophic defeat and capture at the hands of a vengeful Sam Houston at the Battle of San Jacinto. The film begins with Sam Houston wooing potential settlers to migrate to Texas and rallying the provisional Texas government to oppose General Santa Ana's dictatorial rule. Travis is dispatched to the Alamo to fortify it ahead of Santa Ana's advance, which was faster than anticipated. Travis unsuccessfully pleads for reinforcements, but only a few respond. In this clip, Colonel Travis gives the perfunctory Tomorrow We Die speech that always appears in a movie like this. I think we've had a number of them so far uh, in previous episodes. But I think you can detect the post-9-11 rallying cry subtext. Let's listen. There have been many ideas brought forth in the past few months of what Texas is and what it should become. But I'd like to ask each of you what it is you value so highly that you are willing to fight and possibly die for. We will call that Texas. Almost anything seems better than remaining in this place, penned up. If, however, we force the enemy to attack... I believe every one of you will prove himself worth 10 in return. We will not only show the world what patriots are made of, but we will also deal a crippling blow to the army of Santa Ana. If anyone wishes to depart under the white flag of surrender, you may do so now. But if you wish to stay here with me in the Alamo, we will sell our lives dearly. Yes, I think we can definitely catch the uh, 9-11 subtext in the, uh, in the speech there. Yeah, not very subtle. Nothing about the movie is very subtle. Uh, so after that speech, you know, outnumbered and surrounded, the garrison holds for several days before succumbing to a costly frontal assault by Santa Ana's own beleaguered army. Davy Crockett, one of the few survivors captured, embodies the heroic spirit of the defenders and curses Santa Ana before facing the firing squad. A devastated Sam Houston retreats with his army but detects Santa Ana's miscalculation in dividing his forces and surprises the general at San Jacinto, massacring hundreds and capturing the general. In exchange for his life, Santa Ana grants Texas independence. The backstory behind the film is pretty interesting, especially since the idea to make it is directly related to 9-11. Screenwriter Leslie Bohm pitched the idea to Ron Howard 
1998. But it stayed on the back burner until Disney's Michael Eisner fast-tracked it in hopes of releasing a super patriotic feature to help Americans feel better in the wake of the trauma. Ron Howard wanted a Saving Private Ryan type of film, one that was also grounded in historical truth. Failing to see a reliable way to do that, Howard dropped out and the Texan, John Lee Hancock, filled in. And the problem facing all previous Alamo films is separating fact from fiction because most sources are themselves embellishments created after the fact. You know the saying, when choosing between the history and the legend, go with the legend. And the Alamo does that in spades. For our third film, we jump almost a decade from the period of 9-11 and our military responses to it. 12 Years a Slave, released in 2013, is an adaptation of, a, of an 1853 slave narrative by Solomon Northup, a free black from New York who was kidnapped during a trip to Washington, D.C. and sold into slavery in 1841. Northup spent his 12 years in Louisiana before smuggling a letter out describing his plight to friends back home. The autobiography was dictated by Northup to a white state legislator in New York named David Wilson. And it contains all the common literary tropes of the day, including the idea that the abject horrors of a slave society were perpetrated by men and women who were consistently recognizable as evil in every aspect of their lives. That poor white men were brutish out of ignorance, while wealthier white men were evil due to mental instability. And the goodness that was inherently and sincerely pious Christians was always on display. The film adheres closely to the account in most cases. But the points of departure are significant and controversial, as we'll discuss. Directed by Steve McQueen and adapted for the screen by John Ridley, 12 Years was a critical and commercial success, winning several Oscars, including Best Film, Golden Globes, BAFTAs, you name it. The acting is uniformly superb, particularly Chowatella Jayafor as Northup and Lapita Nuango as Patsy. Rounding out the cast are Benedict Cumberbatch, Michael Fassbender, Alfrey Woodard, Paul Giamatti, Sarah Paulson, and an appearance by Brad Pitt, a classic white savior character, the Canadian Mennonite Samuel Bass. Pitt was also a producer on the film. The film begins by depicting Northup's pleasant life as a middle-class free man in Saratoga, New York blessed with a lovely family and the respect of his neighbors. An accomplished violinist, Northup is tempted by an offer to perform in Washington, D.C., but the offer is a ploy to drug him and sell him to slavers specializing in entrapping free blacks and smuggling them to slave states. Initially bought by William Ford, played by Cumberbatch, Northup finds his talents appreciated by Ford, and he even gets to play the violin again. Ford might appear to be the kindly slave owner of historical myth, but really he's all business and simply outsources the brutality to vicious overseers. In this clip, Solomon lashes out at another slave on the Ford plantation for crying incessantly. She calls him out for thinking somehow his previous life matters, that any of them matter. And it's a very powerful scene. Ah! 
Stop! Stop your wailing! Have you stopped crying for your children? You make no sounds, but will you ever let them go in your heart? They are as my flesh. Then who is distressed? Do I upset the master and the mistress? Do you care less about my loss than, than their well-being? Master Ford is a decent man. He is a slaver. Under the circumstances. Under the circumstances, he is a slaver. But you truckle at his boot. No. You luxuriate in his face. I survive. I will not fall into despair. I will offer up my talents to Master Ford. I will keep myself hardy till freedom is opportune. Oh, Ford is your opportunity. You think he does not know that you are more than you suggest. But he does nothing for you. Nothing. You are no better than prized livestock. Call for him. Call. Tell him of your previous circumstances and see what it earns you. Solomon. That scene really encapsulates this tension about um, wanting to, in the slave narrative style of the era, give special credit to the merciful whites while in the language and perspective of 2012 uh, point out very clearly uh, that uh, no quarter should be given. And I think it shows yeah, Northup's inability to fully grasp that he is in a slave society, that he is really no longer a human being, uh, catches up with them when he actually assaults a white overseer. Uh, so un- and that unable to resist the inevitable vengeance of the world they are in, despite his whiteness, this makes Ford sell Northup to Edwin Epps, played by Michael Fassbender, uh, in a way to spare his life. But what it does is plunge Northup into a you know greater horrific situation. So now Northup, under the Epps ownership, is now subjected to the full horrors of the plantation and the demented cruelty of both Mr. and Mrs. Epps, Sarah Polson plays a rather frightening Mrs. Epps here. Patsy, who's Epps's prize, is really is raped, whipped, tortured physically and emotionally at every turn. And, and she even begs Northup at one point to drown her in the swamp. And it, that's also incredibly painful to watch. Eventually, salvation comes from a Canadian contractor named Samuel Bass. Of course, Brad Pitt casts himself as the only decent white character of note. An abolitionist by nature, Bass agrees to send Northup's letter. Uh, and months later, a northern representative arrives and demands the local sheriff intercede, allowing Northup to return to freedom and to reunite with his family. The postscript reveals Northup became active in the abolitionist movement while his kidnappers and everyone associated with his abuse escaped serious consequences. And maybe that part of the story is something that resonates in the present day, people escaping serious consequences. Now that we've recapped the films, let's recap our lies agreed upon. First of all, one of the reasons why history is a set of lies agreed upon is a quip that has stuck is because history has been treated by educational systems, governments, commemorative organizations, all institutions of power, really, as a way to reinforce the the established narratives. History is supposedly there to reassure and uplift us, not challenge us or make us uncomfortable. In other words, 
The lie is that our historical legends and myths are not myths and legends at all. And one of the things that has to be believed in order for this to be true is another lie, the lie that there's only one history, a stable truth that sits outside of time, outside of prejudice, and outside of people's self-interest. And so we've chosen three movies this week that all revisit moments in the course of America and Britain's stories where the lie is laid bare, the lie that we do no evil, that we do not instill terror, that this is what other societies do, not our own. In the case of Bloody Sunday, historical events were for decades codified through the authority of a government inquiry. In the case of the Alamo, historical events and actors were shaped into legends almost immediately and became the fodder for traveling vaudeville shows in 1950s family television. And the story of Solomon Northup was co-opted by white abolitionists at the time and then by filmmakers. In the struggle to understand 9-11, to decide what to do about it, and then to justify what we did, history was used to reassure us and to challenge that basic stories that all societies tell themselves, that they are righteous. As we already pointed out in our summaries of the movies, each movie's release date is particularly important this week. Bloody Sunday was shot in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 and during the subsequent British and American invasion of Afghanistan. In fact, it was released the same month that other NATO member forces arrived in the country and when Kandahar, the Taliban's capital, was taken. But the supposed Marshall Plan for Afghanistan never really materialized. Inadequate funds, inadequate leadership, and a permanent state of threat and conflict marred any efforts to, as the uh, conservative commentator Christopher Hitchens tried to argue at the time, the attempt to bomb Afghanistan out of the Stone Age. Yeah, and Hitchens is one of many who expressed these kind of ideas. Not a clash of civilizations, but rather a battle between the civilized and the uncivilized. But it's worth listening to the laconic attitude and the tone with which he so comfortably puts himself on the side of the civilization-barbarism struggle. For a while, if there's one good thing to come out of this nightmare, I think it will be a tremendous focusing of attention on an area where people have been very slack in their, in their uh, view of it. I signed a big petition against the Taliban and its maltreatment of women and its aggressive policies in Washington in June, which we circulated, couldn't get any attention for it then. Secular civil society can't be defeated by this. It can't. We are, we are stronger in every way than they are. And, and defeat, defeat is unacceptable, period. Defeat is not thinkable either, but it's also not feasible. Right. We're stronger in every sense of that term. Our territory can't be occupied by these people or conquered, uh, nor can our core values be... Um, challenged by them. And so what I'm very against is the people who've been saying, oh, no, we should feel guilt at what we've done to the Muslim world. Uh, we brought this on ourselves. This is chickens coming home to roost. You kindly said I've made a lot of criticisms of American foreign policy. I'd hope to be in the you know, top 10 of such critics. I'm <laughs> glad I hope if I was found in the top 10, I hope I came by it honestly. But this is quite different. Yeah. Very different. Mm -hmm. And in my book, which you kindly also mentioned, I say that the great struggle is between secular society, 
which we, we base ourselves on doubt, right. skepticism, right. free inquiry, right. separation of church and state, right. emancipation of women, believing there's no such thing as any concept of race. We're all human. So between sex society and... That civilization begins where that starts. Right. See, what you have to leave behind is blind faith, tribalism, um, clan and desert culture. And that's every society's had to go through that evolution one form or another. Okay, let me, let me. The equanimity with which the West, particularly the British and Americans, accepted the death toll of civilians in Afghanistan and the necessity for showing no mercy until the wayward, backward tribal people could be shown the error of their ways is very reminiscent of the tone that Tim Pickett Smith and Nicholas Farrell take in the war room in Bloody Sunday. As a historian of the British Empire, I can attest to the authenticity of the easy racial and class superiority expressed in their prep school and military academy accents. Let's listen to Pickett Smith, Farrell, and the other officers as they calmly discuss the ways that they are ensuring a violent encounter will occur, while Farrell utters the disclaimer necessary for them to imagine that their approach to a civil rights march is, in fact, appropriate. Everything's set for today? I think so, sir. Good. Their intention at present is to move along William Street, past going Agricom. all the way along, oh, that's right, sir. into the city centre and onto the Guildhall where they'll be having their rally. As it is, we're going to stop them here at Barrier 14 with the Royal Green Jackets. Very good. If there's any trouble, support company will break through. I don't think there's any doubt about that. There will be. OK, support company then will break through the wall for the Presbyterian churchyard, through this dead ground, break through this wall, and they inter- they're going to come round and sweep round behind all the hooligans round about Agro Corner, sweeping them towards Barrier 14 at the same time Three company will be breaking through Barrier 14 and the hooligans will be caught in a pincer movement. Thank you, Charles. I should just say, sir, of course, one para only go in if there is violence. And then only if there is a clear separation between the march proper and the hooligans. Uh, uh, do we know who we're looking for? Yeah, we've got OP strategic points all along the route. Um, and they're all, they've all been briefed on all the local known players. Have you seen pictures, have they? Yes, yes, yes sir. We, we have a cordon of snipers here, sir, should the IRA wish to make a contribution. Yes, I'm sure they will. Do you know where they're going to be? Mike. Yes, sir, we are concentrating on the top of these block of flats, which, which is where we imagine they'll be. Possibly Glenfarder Park across the road. Very good. Rubber bullets, have the men all been issued? Uh, yes, sir. Good. Morris? Anything I haven't thought of? Um, I suspect press placement will be quite important today, sir. Yes, winning the propaganda war, absolutely vital. Who's in charge of that? Lieutenant Hector, sir. There's also, of course, the contradiction of Farrell's disclaimer, and then immediately, as you noticed in the clip, the universal categorization of all the participants as hooligans. And I think Paul Greengrass's wandering camera, with that style that matter-of-factly captures the violence, chaos, tears and fear and the smoke of Bloody Sunday, whether he meant to or not, it evokes the now iconic footage of stunned New Yorkers staggering through the streets covered in dust. These city streets are a war zone and civilians involved are truly shocked it seems to be happening to them. And I have to ask, is Greengrass comparing the two events, suggesting the British government essentially sponsored a terrorist act? Or does the 9-11 aesthetic, for lack of a better word, You know, does that run so deep that cinematic portrayals of trauma have no choice but to cite it for audiences? 
Certainly within those few months of 9-11, it's hard to imagine that those images wouldn't have influenced uh, the way that he is feeling the trauma of Bloody Sunday needs to be visually representative. And whatever the answer, the sudden immersion in the events, the confusion it evokes from the audience definitely speaks to the fragmented reconfiguration of our reality felt by Americans and Britons in the aftermath of 9-11. And filmed at the beginning of what we now know has been an endless period of warfare, it's ironic that Bloody Sunday was also a film about the beginning of another seemingly endless conflict, The Troubles, made just as that conflict thanks to the Good Friday Agreement, seemed to be finally coming to a close. In 1998, Tony Blair gave a speech in Parliament where he promised to open a new inquiry into Bloody Sunday. By the time the movie was made, there was still no report. In fact, the findings of what is now known as the Saville Inquiry weren't released until 2010. They concluded the following. The firing by soldiers of one para, which was the group of soldiers that was identified in that Tim Pigott-Smith and Nicholas Farrell uh, clip that we played as the group that was indeed going to break through the wall and surprise the hooligans. The firing by soldiers of one para on Bloody Sunday caused the deaths of 13 people and injury to a similar number, none of whom was posing a threat of causing death or serious injury. What happened on Bloody Sunday strengthened the provisional IRA, increased nationalist resentment and hostility towards the army, and exacerbated the violent conflict of the years that followed. Bloody Sunday was a tragedy for the bereaved and the wounded, and a catastrophe for the people of Northern Ireland. That is perhaps finally a moment of closure, particularly as it was read out by David Cameron in Parliament, along with an apology by the British government. But we still have the uncertainty of beginnings, durations, and endings with Bloody Sunday. And in fact, that inevitable, endless sense of threat and warfare really is something that ties together all of our movies. Yes, this is one of the themes we focus on in the episode, the importance and power of narrative. The lies agreed upon are the narratives that gain currency in part because they are the stories told so well that satisfy our hunger for the elements of drama, characters, setting, plot, conflict, and resolution. In truth, historians will tell you that if a story fulfills those requirements too neatly, particularly resolution, then it may need to be reexamined. Basically, the reason why the Alamo is such a disaster is that the myths it tries to infuse with realism are beyond rehabilitation. The narrative naivete of our pre-9-11 attack selves can't withstand the narrative cynicism of our post-9-11 selves. I have to think that this is the reason why Ron Howard dropped out of the project. He wanted to make a gritty, realistic account of the siege. He hired historians, walked the grounds, and sought out multiple perspectives. But all he found was myth on top of myth. And even more problematic, the values those myths were built on have not aged well. 
the final product is proof Howard was right to step away. One crucial element of the Alamo story that must be addressed, particularly because it is central to virtually every novel written with the counterfactual existence of a Republic of Texas, is the fact that the efforts of Bowie, Houston, Crockett, and others were directly motivated by the desire for Texas to be a slaveholding territory. It was not a patriotic motivation to restore the territory to the white European settlers, although even that is a narrative built on racial assumptions that still ignores the indigenous people whose land it was rightfully was. The victory of Mexico over the United States was of little importance to the various groups who actually lived there. In most cases, westward expansion didn't occur because patriots wanted to bring government authority and regulation to these territories. Quite the opposite. Men moved west out of the United States because they wanted to be free of the U.S. government. But in 1829, the Guerrero Decree outlawed slavery in the Mexican territory. And suddenly, it mattered very much what government controlled Texas. The Republic of Texas was, in essence, an attempt to thread the needle, to, be, to not be under the U.S. government, but be allowed to own slaves. As recently as June of this year, the Alamo has been the site of racist and anti-racist actions as the This is the Texas Freedom Force vowed to guard the sacred Alamo cenotaph, only erected in 1933 after someone graffitied down with white supremacy on its base. We will always take a moment to provide the historical context for the movies we're discussing. But this week, with Bloody Sunday released so soon after 9-11, and the Alamo coming at the height of the Iraq War, a context we've already discussed in previous episodes, we dove right in with those two films. That leaves 12 Years a Slave. And it's worth reminding listeners of what was going on when it was released. If you remember, I said a few minutes ago that while some people became less critical and more enamored of patriotic myths after 9-11... Many other consumers of popular culture sought stories that interrogated the legacies of American and British power. Twelve Years a Slave won Oscars and garnered much praise from some circles, while being criticized by others. The context helps to explain this split. As we discussed in the last episode, by 2013, the endless wars, the collateral civilian damage, and the ongoing existence of the Guantanamo Bay prison were in the minds of many filmgoers. In addition, the 2012 killing of Trayvon Martin and the birther movement questioning of President Obama's citizenship tied together the international and domestic reality that America continued to treat black and brown lives as lesser. And the reason why 12 Years a Slave seems so strangely brutal and yet unrealistic at the same time is that it was still a story drawn from an antebellum abolitionist race narrative structure. Even though it was released to a post-Trayvon Martin, Obama presidency America, that was ready to see harsher truths. Obama drew a direct connection, in fact, between the legacy of slavery and the Martin murder in a way that today seems rather polite, but that at the time that he gave this press conference was in fact refers, referred to as a seismic speech. Uh, Trayvon Martin was first shot. Uh, I said that this could have been my son. Uh, another way of saying that is uh, Trayvon Martin could have been me uh, 35 years ago. And 
When you think about why, in the African-American com community at least, um, there's a lot of pain around what happened here, uh, I think it's important to recognize that the African-American community is looking at this issue through uh, a set of experiences and a, and a history that, that doesn't go away. You know, there are very few African-American men in this country who haven't had the experience of being followed when they were shopping in a department store. There are very few African-Americans who haven't had the experience of getting on an elevator and a woman clutching her purse uh, nervously and holding her breath until she had a chance to get off. Those sets of experiences inform how the African-American community interprets uh, what happened uh, one night in Florida. The African-American community is also knowledgeable that uh, there is a history of racial disparities in the application of our criminal laws, uh, everything from the death penalty to enforcement of our drug laws. Uh, and that ends up having an impact in terms of how people interpret the case. Now, this isn't to say that the African-American community is naive about the fact that African-American young men uh, are disproportionately involved in the criminal justice system, uh, that they're disproportionately both victims and perpetrators of violence. Um, it's not to make excuses for that fact, uh, although black folks do interpret uh, the reasons for that in a historical context, they understand that some of the violence that takes place in poor black neighborhoods around the country uh, is born out of uh, a very violent past in this country. So in 12 Years a Slave, demonic whites populate the narrative and on screen. And while there is no shortage of those in any time period, the film leaves the impression that these bad apples sustained slavery for centuries. It was them, not the entire infrastructure of the South, not the inherent racial hierarchy in place since 1619 from which we have yet to escape, and not the craven indifference of the vast majority of Americans North or South in an America that found Martin's killer not guilty. Yes, and I think that this is where, I mean, I'd really like to kind of tease out a few of these, um, a few of these ideas because um, – you know, I think that this, the, the uh, kind of circles within circles within circles of uh, how these movies both resonate back to 9-11 and the trauma of 9-11 and then forward as really clear indications of this ongoing trauma to the nation and to our sense of ourselves back to one of our lies agreed upon, misunderstanding the whole point of history, that, that history is not this stable set of facts that we can just sort of reach back and access. It's a series of narratives that get constructed and reconstructed and deployed and weaponized and that that's the job of the historian is to constantly return to those narratives and check again, <laughs> right? Double check. Yeah, ask different questions from different perspectives. Is, is, that should not be a sign of weakness. And uh, 
the whole point is to sh- of a historian is to is to look at root causes and and address different perspectives from our own and that uh, like i say is, is the ultimate act of of a patriot is to be able to do that willingly and systematically Now, there's one other thing that I want to mention about uh, the Alamo, because, you know, Please. we really <laughs> can't let it off yeah, so, yeah, you know, I think we, uh, this first, lightly. Yeah. Let's tell people we – I think we everyone can sense that we both like Bloody Sunday. I re- admire and respect yes. 12 Years a Slave, and yet we can see say that there are problems with it. But the Alamo, we maybe enjoyed more than anything because it was so god-awful – that it was for for entertainment value, <laughs> cynics like us, we we maybe enjoyed it more than the other two, but for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> but actually, actually, what you're um, pointing out is reminding me of something else, though, is that I'm not sure that we've really fully explained what that kind of problematic tension is in Twelve Years a Slave. There's this thing between the the narrative form that it was drawn from. And what we now have a clearer understanding of, because of the work of generations of historians on the institution of and society of slavery in America. Now, I think that's a great way to frame it because I, I by choosing to be mostly faithful to the the uh, the. The narrative, the slave narrative, which, as you say, has a has a particular style and and was really ginned up by the abolitionists. It, it it maybe was a noble choice because you're staying truthful to the source material, but by but as you say, by doing that, you're neglecting just how much has been learned about slavery since 1853 that would complicate this uh, the 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 environment he's in and the the portrayal of the characters who may be exactly how they are portrayed in what is somewhat of a fictive work anyway any the autobiography but but you're neglecting yes decades of research that would show that this was infrastructure it was it was not it was a way of life in every sense of the word and and maybe we get sucked into the visual and and and, and oral parts of that film that uh, that take us away from really might be a more brutish reality than even is on the screen. My favorite moment in the film is actually not the extremely sort of um, melodramatic moments or the the set pieces that are intended to really indicate the the sort of evil nature of, um, you know, the, the apps, both uh, husband and wife, but in fact, it's this scene where Solomon Northup is strung up to be tortured by being left on his tiptoes and that that is the only thing that is stopping him from uh, asphyxiating. And the rest of the slaves of the plantation are so traumatized, so inured to the brutality of their lives that they, including kids playing, simply go on about their chores, preparing their dinner around this man while this is happening to him. And I think that 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 is the scene that really 
represents the the system in the most effective way. I absolutely agree. And it's something obviously couldn't play on a podcast very well because it has zero dialogue in it. But visually, it is it is just uh, a perfect representation of, of the just normalcy of, of this brutality. And that's something that um, should have, you know, ideally we would, as historians, we would like to see teased out more in, in a film like that. But let's take, let's go a thousand degrees in the other direction there and talk about the Alamo. <laughs> and and I would like to ask you, you know, what, why did it feel so just empty? I mean, and comically bad to you because I mean, it, it just, it, it elicited no emotion despite Good actors and uh, um, I mean, it had good actors. I don't know about anything else, but it but it just fell flat in every way. Yeah. And I and I have to just I don't know why. Uh, I mean, I I have ideas, but how, why do you think it just felt so empty? Well, I think that in part um, it, it's because you know I mean you're absolutely right. The writer and the director they tried to insert more complexity into the story. We have, for example, this brief mention of the fact that Jim Bowie was a, a slave owner. This this attempt to try and nod at the motivations that were really behind these men's actions. But as I have come to understand, I actually didn't even know about this term before. Uh, I only recently came upon that, that uh, if you look up uh, Westerns, in like IMDb or or Wikipedia, like different titles, they will actually designate something as either a Western or a revisionist Western, which I think is really interesting <laughs> because it's really basically acknowledging the the mythic structures uh, or the you know the narrative structures of these sort of mythic westerns versus the newer Westerns that we have that are intended, whose very project is to pick that apart, right? And the Alamo, I think, is so caught in that patriotic motivation of the post 9-11 moment that it does neither. It basically just empties out the entire story of the Alamo and doesn't succeed in putting anything back in. A moment I liked in the film is Billy Bob Thornton as Davy Crockett is watching the the play that is based on his life. You know, the one that that's the first step in creating the legend of Davy Crockett. And and he is acknowledging the fact in the movie, he goes, you know, I wear this hat because people expect me to ever since that play. He goes, I don't want to disappoint anybody. And it's like the only acknowledgement that that he makes, not for himself, but of the whole time period, that I'm I'm creating this myth and I'm living with it because it's it's just who we are. And that one moment was just not sustained long enough or deep enough to, to make the point that this whole thing, this is an exercise in myth making. But I did appreciate the way Billy Bob Thornton just sort of you know, starkly said, well, people expect this from me. Like, he's aware of his own myth. Right. And he, goes, yes, and he exactly. gets to die in a mythic way, too. And that's great. So. That is one of the few great details of the film. And just to remind everyone of the longevity of the Davy Crockett myth, 
Here's a couple of verses from the Fess Parker theme song to the hit TV show of the mid-1950s. Notice how his exploits are characterized in this clip. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. Fought single-handed through the engine war Till the creeks was whipped and the peace wasn't stored While he was handling this risky chore Made himself a legend forevermore Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier He'd give his word and he'd give his hand That his engine friends could keep their land the rest of his life he took the stand that justice was due ever redskin band. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. He went off to Congress and served a spell, fixing up the government and laws as well. Took over Washington, so we hear tell, and patched up the crack in the Liberty Bell. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. Interestingly, the song doesn't end with his death at the Alamo, I suppose because the TV show was focused on his legend building, not its tragic end. I wanted to play that, though, because unfortunately, the 2004 movie is as polite as the 1955 Fest Parker tune when it comes to describing another character's exploits. As we mentioned, the movie does acknowledge that Jim Bowie was a slave owner. But what it doesn't confront at all is that Bowie made a living doubling down on the brutality of the slave state. In fact, after the slave trade was outlawed in the United States, Bowie illegally smuggled and traded slaves. I like to think that perhaps the revelation of that detail might have been what made Ron Howard decide not to pursue the project, although he still was a producer of the film, so we can't give him too much of a pass. The Alamo told a myth about a righteous cause that patriots died for at a moment when American men and women were being sent to die for a questionable cause whose critics were labeled unpatriotic. Twelve Years a Slave was made at a moment when the original flaw in America's character once more threatened to break through the national myths that disguised it. But Bloody Sunday was made in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, and it's important to think about its message in that context. Greengrass is offering a cautionary tale to his audience. He's showing a tragic event that led to an even greater decades-long tragedy. And the cause of that, Greengrass is clearly saying, is that those with the power to control the narrative refuse to tell a truthful one or to confront their lies later. Throughout the movie, we see the British lying to themselves about being the good guys. And in this alternate reality, the enemy is everyone who challenges the myth that they are always on the side of righteousness. Some comfort can be taken, perhaps, in the fact that The Alamo is so irredeemable as a movie that even in the hyper-patriotic moment when it was made, its message fell on deaf ears. And the fact that Twelve Years a Slave, in all its horror, feels inadequate in its treatment of the systemic racism whose legacy provided no justice for Trayvon Martin suggests that the layers of mythology continue to be peeled away, although never fast enough. This episode was written by Leah Parody and Brian Krim. It was edited by Leah, and the theme music was written by Mike Patterson. Check out our website, liesagreedupon.com, for more on each episode, including lit clips and links to the films discussed. You could subscribe to get this excellent free content in your inbox, 
You can find us wherever you find your favorite podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lies Agreed Upon. That's at Lies underscore Upon.